0: This week, we'll take issue with the war between Israel and Hamas, two old enemies locked in a deadly new conflict. But why now? What comes next? And what new urgency does it add to the search for a House Speaker? And the brick gets bigger after the Boston City Council approves funding for its controversial Regional Intelligence Center. I'm Corey. I'm Matt. And I'm Sue. And this is Taking Issue.
1: Our nation was born here, not with a whimper, but with the spark of revolution.
2: One more indictment. And this election is
0: closed out. That's what democracy is. It's a choice of the people,
1: by the people, and for the people.
0: Welcome to Episode 2 of Taking Issue. The debut was so nice, we decided to do it twice. I'm Corey Smith. We appreciate you being here. I am joined once again by NBC10 Boston political commentator and analyst Sue O'Connell and NBC10 Boston political reporter Matt Pritchard. Before we go any further, a little housekeeping we are now wherever you get your podcast. You can download new episodes of Taking Issue Weekly on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, Amazon, wherever you get them. We are there. So we definitely appreciate you being with us.
2: What do the kids say? It's like, subscribe, yeah, all those things. Yeah, smash that subscribe yeah. button. Make sure like you Like my do status,
0: <laughs> whatever you need. Um, all right, let's move ahead to a, a certainly more serious topic. We're going to begin the pod overseas, the war between Israel and Hamas on Saturday, October 7th. Hamas fighters infiltrated Israel by land, air, and sea, massacring innocent men, women, and children. Israel responded immediately, pounding Gaza with rockets and laying siege to the city, cutting off food, water, and electricity, and amassing hundreds of thousands of troops near the border. The death toll sadly continues to rise on both sides. More than 2,300 people killed in both Israel and Gaza. More than two dozen Americans are among the dead. Obviously, we have been following the situation closely here in New England, but we are by no means experts on this topic. So we're going to hear from a few throughout the podcast. Before we get to that, uh, let me just get both of your thoughts on on what we've seen really as this conflict gets closer to its first week.
3: Well, I I think the shock of what happened uh, and the uh, atrocities of what happened with the Hamas attack on Saturday You know, I I often have discussions with my daughter about where we can travel. You know, I'm a lesbian, I'm a a woman, I'm a single parent. Where can we travel in the world where we feel safe? And Israel often comes up as a safe place because of the dome, because of the fence, because of the underground uh, barriers, uh, and none of that seemed to matter on Saturday with Hamas. And um, also just what this means for the world, obviously, the toll that's happening on, on both the uh, Gaza Strip and what happened on Saturday in Israel. But what that means for the rest of the world, we're certainly gonna see players like Saudi Arabia and Egypt and Russia and China, and of course, the United States involved in this from a geopolitical standpoint. So it's a very disturbing time, both because of what happened and because of what may be ahead.
0: And man, I'm sure you agree we're watching this both through a political lens, but also just a humanity lens.
2: Yeah, absolutely, I mean the horrific images that we're all unfortunately seeing play out on social media or on the news just, you know, so tragic to look at no matter who you are but just seeing how kind of how sue was mentioning how the entire world is responding and reminding us that this conflict touches a lot of different areas i mean yes it's happening in the middle east but it impacts us here in north america over to europe and into asia as well everyone seems uh, to have a stake in this in some way form or fashion
0: all right so we're going to get to that in just a second i want to play uh some sound uh from msnbc earlier in the week right on the heels of uh, the conflict beginning. Uh, Katie Tor uh, interviewing Ayman Moheddin who has lived and worked in the region. He gave his thoughts on a sort of, I guess, short-term and long-term solution to the conflict. Let's listen.
4: The short-term solution to this is for Israel to recover the hostages uh, that have been taken into Gaza. I think that's, that's
0: creating a, the prisoners?
4: That is going to be a decision that Israel has to make because it's going to have to decide on what is the value of the Israeli lives that it wants to save and whether or not it wants to release them through, as they have in the past, negotiations for prisoner swaps. Keep in mind that, from a Palestinian perspective, Israel has thousands of Palestinians, including women and children, that are held, many of them in arbitrary detention, many of them who have not had a fair uh, judicial process. So when you're asking for the release of the Palestinians, it's not that you're asking for the release of terrorists. Israel is going to say they are terrorists, but the truth to the Palestinians is those are not terrorists. Those are women and children that are being held uh, illegally and out of a legal framework by Israel. Put that aside, because that's the short-term question to how do you get out of this situation. But if you're trying to solve the long-term process, which is how do you get a mechanism in place that allows these two sides to sit around the negotiating table, is you have to speak clearly about what the roots of the, the root problems are, and it's not going to be writing a blank check to Israel to give it the belief that it can do whatever it wants. Part of the reason why we are in this mess is that year after year, decade after decade, um, the Israeli government subsequently have been told by the West that they can do whatever they want and get a blank check from the United States. And in doing so, the end result is you get a government in Israel that believes the Palestinian issue is not fundamental to the core problem in the region and the false belief that making peace with countries beyond the Palestinians is going to come back and solve the Palestinian issue. As we have seen, and not to go off on a tangent, but as we've seen... Israel has peace with Egypt since 1979. It has peace with Jordan. It now has peace with the United Arab Emirates, Morocco, Sudan, all the most important countries in the Arab world, with the exception of Saudi Arabia, potentially uh, on the horizon soon. None of that prevented what happened today.
0: All right, so Eamon talking about the short-term hostages hostages being released on on both sides. We'll we'll see if if that comes to fruition. We're certainly not hearing a a lot from uh, Benjamin Netanyahu, the IDF, about that that happening, but looking at the larger context of sort of why now, why this happened, and as we've been kind of following this and reading this, uh, one piece of information that really stood out to me was uh, some analysis that was done by Reuters, and and they spoke to to Laura Bloomfield at the Middle, uh, she's a Middle East analyst at Johns Hopkins University for Advanced International Studies, Um, and she said uh, Hamas may have lashed out due to a sense that it was facing irrelevance as efforts advance toward broader Israeli-Arab relations. Going back to the Trump administration, we have seen some normalization between Israel and Arab countries, United Arab Emirates, uh, Sudan, perhaps maybe even looking forward to Saudi Arabia. And in that same Reuters article, they quoted uh, Osama Hamdan, the leader of Hamas in Lebanon, um, saying that the operation should make Arab states realize that accepting Israeli security demands would not bring peace he said, quote, for those who want stability and peace in the region, the starting point must be to end the Israeli occupation. Some Arab states unfortunately started imagining that Israel could be the gateway for America to defend their security. Can we see any sort of solution to this without really addressing the Israeli-Palestine conflict in any sort of meaningful way, understanding what is happening on, on both sides of, of this war?
3: So. Uh, I don't have an answer to that, Corey, obviously, because if I did, I would, be, I would be over there fixing it all. But I, I can tell you from the conversations I've had pr- prior to this war, last year and especially during COVID, I spoke to a number of uh, younger Israelis, under 35, uh, in the arts. Uh, they, were, they were both uh, folks that were based in the United States and in Israel and who were working on projects with their counterparts who were Palestinian, either uh, on, the, on, on, on Gaza or here or in Europe and many of them would express to me that they felt that they could politically find a solution, that they could work together to find peace. Of course, the political landscape in Israel with Netanyahu, uh, they were not necessarily supportive of him in any way. Of course, the country is unified now as, as one would hope they would uh, to, to address this horror. but. I think that um, there there's going to have to be discussions about how to deal with the civilian Palestinians who are living on Gaza's, G- Gaza and have nowhere to go. I mean, as we're learning right now, they're being told to evacuate. They can't go into Egypt. They can't go into Israel. They can't leave uh, by water. There's nowhere for them to go. So if they can't go somewhere and it continues to be an issue and it's, you know, it's the Middle East problem. It's it's Israel's challenge. Uh, there's going to have to be some discussion. And
0: that that's one thing that we've heard journalists in Israel bring up is obviously this conflict is not new. And in the past, when Hamas has has struck Israel and Israel has responded in kind, the rhetoric that you would hear from the IDF from Netanyahu was we are going to take care to minimize civilian casualties. Whether or not you believe them to actually take that approach is is not not the issue, at least for this conversation, but they were at least saying it. Mm-hmm. Um, you hear from some journalists in Israel now and, and they're worried that you are not hearing Netanyahu say that, which which then leads you to think, are they just indiscriminately going to attack Gaza because that's where Hamas is? And I think that's another larger point that we've seen throughout the coverage is making sure to understand that Palestine, like any place, is yeah. not a, a monolith. There are people over there who are horrified by by what Hamas has done, um, who who, who want an independent state, but, but not by those means. And I think it's important when you hear people say, Hamas does not equal Palestine, and on the other side, The israeli government does not equal all israelis or all jews no no matter where they are across the globe
2: yeah absolutely i mean this conflict's been going on for so long i mean that's why it's so difficult i think for us as journalists to sometimes cover it because it has so many different pieces to the puzzle that have all led to this sort of inflection point that you're talking about corey where the rhetoric has started to shift a little bit on both sides no, I think the New York Times had a really good piece where they went in and talked with someone in Gaza who was talking about how inside of their homes they actually have these safe rooms where they've been ready to go inside whenever they have these sort of bombings that will happen when they knew things had changed is that they could hear the terrorists outside of their windows shooting through those uh, buildings. And so it kind of puts it in perspective that we have, we've shifted here. This crisis has changed from what we've seen in the past to what we're seeing now.
0: Obviously it has plenty of implications here at home as well. Um, Speaking of rhetoric, you look at the reaction from lawmakers on the Hill, um, somewhat bipartisan response, obviously horrified by the atrocities that, that happened to the Israelis. But then you're seeing this sort of split, certainly on the left, um, from more progressive members of Congress who say what Hamas did was terrible, but we have to look at the broader context of what Israel has done to the Palestinian people in terms of, you know, we, we hear the phrase open-air prison used a lot when, when you talk about Gaza. Um, even this week, we had Senator Ed Markey uh, and and Congressman Jake Auchincloss at a, at the same event, speaking to the same crowd. Ed Markey was booed for saying that there needed to be a de-escalation in the situation. Jake Auchincloss said, how can you de-escalate when you have one side aiming for the complete annihilation of the other? Now, as the U.S. continues to send aid to Israel, are we going to see, do you think, more of a sort of shift, a divide on, on,
3: on the on the left? No. Um, I, I think, you know, if we just look at Ed Markey, I mean, there's, there's probably nobody – I mean, he is equal to everyone who is as pro-Israel as there is. That's Ed Markey. There's no question about Ed Markey's support for Israel or his work for Israel. Um, and to his comment, I think he might have misspoke a little bit. I mean, obviously, when you're under attack, you retaliate. But, you know, I remember how we all felt after 9-11 and how uh, in the months after we rushed into Iraq. You know, and now I think we can all look back and say maybe that, Maybe that was not the best thing to do mm-hmm. at the time. You know, when after after the the UN hearings and talking about weapons of mass destruction, maybe we needed to take a moment uh, and not and, and and consider what we're doing, which I think is what Markey was expressing. Um, and obviously, uh, uh has a, a, an understanding as well in responding that the the right thing to do if you are. Uh, a, a supporter of people who are being attacked, is to say they have the right to defend themselves, which I think is what Auchincloss was saying. When you get to the further left, I mean, you've already seen uh, AOC uh, pushing back against the, uh, the democratic socialists, or socialist mm-hmm. democrats who were uh, busy um, waving flags and, and um, being disruptive at uh, an Israel- Israeli support rally last week at, um, in New York and she pushed back and said this is this is not the time for that so I think there's gonna be some self-correction for the progressives and also a lesson I mean you know we we look at these elected officials some of them have only been in office a handful of years and this might be their first crisis the first thing you always do is affirm and acknowledge the atrocities that have happened affirm and acknowledge your allies and what they have the right to do which is to defend themselves Uh, and If there's time to add context that time always comes it doesn't have to be in your first statement
0: what do you what do you think president biden is is saying to prime minister netanyahu obviously he he has reiterated uh very firmly the u.s stands with israel but from just a diplomatic relations standpoint solving this problem or or finding some sort of solution can can you just be talking to israel about about israeli security and not talk about what's happening in the West Bank.
3: Yep. So, so there's, a, there's a cost here for both, uh, and I'm talking purely political, um, for both Hamas and for Israel. I, again, not a Middle East expert, but I have to believe that Hamas was shocked at um, the lack of resistance that they faced when they crossed over into into Israeli territory. I think that they had no intention of causing the amount of atrocities and the amount of damage that they expected and I think every security expert you've heard around the world is talking about how shock shocking it is that uh... the Israeli soldiers weren't there there was not law enforcement there that none of their security worked how long it took for them to respond so having said that I don't know if Hamas expected to have this sort of uh... result and therefore make Israel respond to the degree that they have, which, you know, is understandable. Um, So I also think that Biden and um, Netanyahu are talking about the hostage situation. Um, Israel in the past has traded hundreds of uh, prisoners for one Israeli soldier. Uh, There are a number of hostages being held, including Americans, and you can imagine that this response from Israel uh, would put them in some sort of danger. So I imagine that's what they're talking about now, and what the result will be, right? What Israel's response uh, with their attack and their response to uh, on the on the on the strip will have with the neighbors in the surrounding area. Again, to our earlier point, there's no doubt that our, our Iran is involved in this, and there's no doubt that uh, many are thinking that Russia is involved in this as well. So um, this is a very very. A precarious situation for everyone, so I imagine that Biden is offering as much counsel as Netanyahu.
0: Uh, Matt, you've been in New Hampshire all week. How is this playing out on the campaign trail?
2: Every single candidate we've spoken with have made this basically the first thing that they address in whatever speech it is. We had Donald Trump on Monday who said that if, you know, he was put back in office, well, he first says if if he would have never left, this wouldn't have happened, of course. That's a typical thing that he says when it comes to the war in Ukraine, but now it's transitioning to what's happening uh, in Israel. He also says, Said that he's the only one who can solve it and honestly that's what a lot of the other gop candidates are saying as well this is filing week in new hampshire if you're familiar with how this goes essentially the candidates make their way to concord they go in the secretary of state's office they have to file in person and then they sit down at the table and talk to new hampshire media and the national media as a whole what i've found interesting is that you know new hampshire media normally you'd kind of expect them to focus just on the granite state and the voters there but They're even asking more about Israel than anything else. And then the national media follows up. Each candidate has said that they feel like the Biden administration hasn't gone far enough. Uh, to try and protect Israel and to show support. They've chastised Congress for not getting their act together in the House and having a speaker so that they can put forward resolutions and funding to assist Israel. And that's Ron DeSantis, that's Doug Burgum, that's Asa Hutchinson, and a couple other candidates as well. So you're starting to see that this is going to be a major point as we go throughout uh, this election cycle. The next GOP debate is in November. I guarantee you we're going to hear a lot about it.
0: We'll get to the speaker uh, search in just a second, but I want to bring it home. Here to, here to Boston, and what we've seen on campuses mm-hmm. across the area. You had, uh, in the wake of the attack, a number nearly three dozen pro Palestinian student groups on, at Harvard send out a, a statement that received plenty of black backlash from alums, um, civic leaders, economic leaders. Um, then you had the university send its own statement out responding to that statement. The university statement received backlash. So then you had the president send out her own statement about what's happening and how how the feelings of those groups don't represent Harvard as a whole. What do you make of the response on, on the universities in, in and around Boston, where you obviously have a, a large Jewish-Israeli um, student population, but also you have folks who have direct, um, who, who have been directly impacted by the, the history between these two countries, Israel and Palestine?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think, <laughs> you give me the easy questions, Corey. Sorry. The, uh, <laughs> the, you know, the first response, and I think that the mistake, this is why you go to college, right? This is why you go to school, so you can learn things. The first response is always to acknowledge that the atrocities are atrocities, mm-hmm. and this is a terrible thing. There is no moral equivalent, right? Um, killing babies, burning babies, uh, hurting 15-year-old girls into a room and murdering them does not there's no moral equivalent to anything that has happened to people that would equal that. So you have to denounce that immediately. And then, if you are supporters of Palestinian peace, or uh, a two-state solution, or are concerned about the way the Israeli government has treated uh, Palestinians, you need to delineate that from anti-Semitism. And be clear that Jews all around the world are often targeted uh, the, we've got data here in the United States that it is a terrible time to be a Jewish American right now, with all sorts of crimes and graffiti and hate speech directed at Jews in America, American Jews. So that you need to couch what you're going to say with those realities. And also, you know, it would have been a great moment for the Palestinian groups to stand with Israel, uh, to stand with the Palestinian civilians, and to den- denounce Hamas which I didn't really see in any of those statements, that you, know, you can be a, supportive of, a supporter of Palestinians and denounce Hamas, which I don't think they did clearly. And um, I, you know, I also think, to some of the, the school, also what's happening with the superintendents, mm-hmm. um, you know, I think that there is sometimes a carefulness that catches you up. You know, we don't want to denounce humanity. We don't want to denounce innocent Palestinians um, who are, by a lottery of birth, born there for generations and have nowhere to go. But at the same time, you can denounce the actions of their government, which is what, you know, threading the needle is.
0: In some ways, it sort of strikes me uh, as similar to the reaction we have when there's a, a school shooting. Mm-hmm. Um, the school shooting happens, and immediately you have one side say, now is the time to focus on the victims and the families and, and, and praying for them. And the other side saying, the gun control side saying, no, now is the perfect time to talk about the, the, the gun issue in America. And, and you sort of had that sort of, sort of dynamic at play here. No, now is the time to recognize the atrocities and everything that has happened. And other folks saying, well, now is the time to really drill down on why it happened.
2: Yeah, no, I, I agree with everything you're saying. I mean, these crisis moments are just difficult, I think, for yeah. for everyone to address. I mean, you mentioned there's been outlash to the Harvard situation from a lot of different people in Boston politics, too. I mean, Congressman Aachenkloss is a Harvard grad, you know, and said that he was ashamed of his, uh, alma mater, uh, of, yeah. of his alma mater. And so, you know, it's just like everyone, I feel like everyone's almost frozen in a way. It's it, people are reacting in seven different ways and which way is the best way and I yeah. think sue hit it on the head there's a right way to do this which is the first step you know and the steps you take after that can kind of make their way after yeah. that but if you miss that first step yeah. anything you do after that can be completely misconstrued
3: right. and context you know context is important and right. I think anytime anyone can add context this is a civilization a region that's been populated by a civilization for at least 5,000 years, right? We're not gonna be able to sum it all up in a couple of minutes. And so it's just important to give the context as objectively as you can, while acknowledging the atrocities that are happening and the innocent civilians that are always everywhere. So as it relates to the US response,
0: we know they are sending uh, aid munitions to Israel, but getting more out is compounded by the fact that we still don't have a speaker of the House of Representatives. We have a, I guess, front-runner, or or what we thought was going to be a front-runner. The GOP conference said Steve Scalise. A majority of them said Steve Scalise is our guy. But a majority in the conference is not the 217 votes he needs to ascend to the speaker. We've already seen nearly a dozen lawmakers say, nope, not my guy. I want Jim Jordan or somebody else. Um, (laughs) Are we going to have a speaker by episode three? I think I asked you if we're (laughs) going to have a speaker by episode two.
3: So we're talking here on Thursday, um, and... uh, he, Scalise needs every single Republican to vote for him in order to go forward. Wait,
0: Democrats? No Democrats are going to vote for him? I can't imagine. Really? Oh,
3: right. let's no, see if they're going to, you know. Uh, so I, I just, I don't know what they're going to do. I mean, I think McHenry, who is the, the pro tempore speaker, um, I've been reading a lot on this, and maybe you, but guys know better than I. But they're not sure what powers he does or doesn't have. Like yeah. they haven't. Right. So you
0: hear the word unprecedented. Using so, a lot in this yeah. situation. So
3: maybe he'll just stay and to get it done. To get, get, get it done to, to get, get, get the, the fund. Well, and, and I, I read
2: today was that. A group of Republican lawmakers are yep. trying to find sort of a way to give him temporary powers through November yep. so we can get some of these things done. By the way, a government shutdown, how far away now? 20 days? Yep. So, I mean, Israel, government shutdown. Ukraine. Ukraine. It couldn't be busier right now for Congress, and they can't operate.
3: And I don't know what they're going to do. I mean, this is everybody keeps asking, what do you think is going to happen? If you can, I mean, these are two leaders, Jim Jordan and Scalise. Regardless of what you think of them, they're leaders in their party, mm-hmm. right? And even though they're conservative, they're somewhat, everyone likes them. You know, I mean, you can dislike them at, like you see them on TV, but people have good interactions this with them. It's a gun
0: violence survivor. You can't. Cancer survivor.
3: But if these guys can't get elected, then who, who? Who?
2: Yeah. Well, and I also find it curious, Jim Jordan kind of falling in line right and backing Scalise we saw him do the same thing back in January with McCarthy when a bunch of these people on the sort of the hardliners of the party were saying you know like we want Jim Jordan he's like no like we're going that's our guy you realize how damaging this is to 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 show the nation that we can't govern we're dysfunctional all these different things so hey it's just fascinating to your point Sue that like leaders are gonna be leaders but they can't keep the rest of the conference
0: well, I'll tell you a penny for Kevin McCarthy's thoughts, because here he is sitting sitting in the back and watching, you What's know, it all the, go uh, down. And, and
2: and they introduced him in the conference as what uh, speaker pro tem, like you know, or, or emeritus or whatever emeritus, it was. Yeah, yeah emeritus. Yeah. he's not dead. So, he's still here. Yeah, exactly.
0: um, all right, let, let's come home. Um, in the last few weeks, there has been a lot of talk about the Boston Regional Intelligence Center, more commonly known as BRIC. Um, and a controversial vote that was taken at, at Boston City Hall uh, on whether or not to accept federal grant to expand uh, the BRIC. So I know you've been digging into this uh, issue. What have you found?
3: Well, so as you mentioned, uh, the vote happened in October and the city council split uh, the vote was seven to five with the white city councilors voting to fund it and the councilors of color voting to oppose it. Uh, this BRIC was formed in 2005. The idea was that it would fight terrorism. And share information with federal agencies, state agencies, and local agencies uh, for all threats and hazards. That's sort of the mission of it, from um, just your basic homicide investigations to school bomb threats or the hospital threats that we had earlier in the year. Um, And people are, of course, concerned about this because uh, people of color are often the victims of this sort of surveillance, and many say that the idea that it's stopping things isn't really working. So I spoke with Kate Crawford. She is the director of Technology for Liberty program at the ACLU in Massachusetts. I asked her if BRIC was a necessity for law enforcement to fight terrorism and local crime. Here's what she said.
1: One of the issues that we see here is we see local governments for example, the Boston police department telling the elected representatives of the Boston city council that we need the Fusion Center because of gang violence. We need the Fusion Center because of the important role that uh, the analysts at the Fusion Center play in analyzing data about gun violence in Boston and that that is crucial for our anti-violence efforts on the streets of Boston. Well, that's very interesting because I read the documents that the Boston Police Department sent to DHS about what this grant money was going to be used for. And it said that it was going to be used for 100% Anti terrorism intelligence work. So, again, you know, we have this kind of mismatch between what the police are telling the public and the city council about why we need the fusion center and about the important role that the fusion center plays. And frankly, as a report from Congress a number of years ago found, again, this was a report put together by Republicans, not Democrats, fusion centers had not contributed anything, not a single thing. To the federal counterterrorism effort, and even worse, had violated people's rights in countless ways across the country.
0: So interesting there, and I know at least the conversation on social media and, and the bulk of the conversation um, was about the gang database right. more more than the terrorism mm-hmm. uh, th- that was just mentioned. Were you surprised to see that boat come down? along those not just racial lines maybe generational lines as well
3: yeah i was actually more surprised that michelle wu (laughs) had forwarded this along uh with uh, michael cox who is our boston police superintendent michael cox of course uh commissioner had um a a very troubling interaction as a Boston police officer and has returned. He's obviously African-American, Michelle Wu, a progressive, uh, also a minority. And when she was a city councilor just a couple of years ago, she voted to block the grant funding for BRIC. Um, And she has changed her position, obviously, by forwarding the idea that BRIC needs more money. She has cited the new Office of Police Accountability and Transparency and the reforms in the gang database. asked Crockford what she made of
1: Wu's change of mind. I think Mayor Wu is right that the surveillance oversight ordinance does improve things um, quite a bit in Boston. And, but really what that ordinance does is it brings the city council and the public um, into kind of the process of thinking about what technologies the Boston Police Department is using and what policies govern the use of those technologies. So it's not a panacea. It's not, you know, it doesn't overnight address all of the issues that boston and many other cities you know i just want to say again this is not just boston this is most cities across the country dealing with the same issues
0: how much of uh any sort of re-election bid do you think wu's change of heart uh could have been based on
1: well
3: i think that's always especially at this point in her term uh that's always um top of mind but i also think Uh, There's something happens between being a Boston City Councilor and then becoming the mayor and you know We also saw it with Barack Obama when he was a senator and then he became president and Gitmo still open, right? You know there is information you get that you don't have access to when you're a leader as opposed to someone who's working and dealing with constituent services so I think that there are things that were shown to Michelle Wu that made her believe that with the guardrails that she thinks that she's put in place and with Michael Cox in position, that therefore it can be an effective tool. But I also think, yes, she's certainly going to be, have a challenge from, you know, I don't want to say the right, because it's it's Boston, but you know, from her right side.
0: But even even opponents mentioned, you know, a lot of the talk was about the gang database, but and this is b- before you joined the station. Um, a lot of the opponents said, if this is such a great tool yeah. at, at stopping you know, people who would come to Boston to do us harm, how did they not know that a group of white supremacists were gonna show up around America's birthday mm-hmm. and assault a man or allegedly assault yep. a man because it, it's going through the court system. Um, what have you heard about that those talks? Because on the other side, you have, you know, just this past week or maybe two weeks ago, uh, a young boy disappeared mm-hmm. and apparently the Regional Intelligence Center stepped in to help. I've been inside these fusion centers. It's mm-hmm. it's. It's police working with sheriff's deputies, working with fire departments, working with, med- with, with first responders and, and EMS crews. Some would say it serves its purpose. Some would say it's not. But, I mean, it's, it's here to stay yep. at this point here in Boston.
3: My, my friends in law enforcement would say, you don't know what it is that they are stopping. Mm. And you also don't know what it is that they're allowing to happen. Right? So, uh, you know, if, if uh, the uh, guys who jumped in the U-Haul for the 4th of July, maybe they knew they were coming and they were going to let them come. Mm. Uh, to see what was going to happen. So there's things that we don't know. I'm not defending it. The gang database, definitely uh, problematic because you could be in a gang database just for living next door to someone who's in it. But um, I did ask, um, ask our, our ACLU guest here, you know, it's, what improvements would
1: you like to see made to BRIC? This uh, controversy over funding the BRIC has been an important moment in Boston politics and it's an important moment, I think, for folks in the council, for people in the administration and for those of us in the advocacy community to sit back for a second and think clearly about what it is that we actually want to change at the BRIC, what it is that we want to change at the Boston Police Department. And I would you know, put out there that I think one of the things that we ought to do is look at uh, whether it's a new ordinance or it's changes to existing policy that um, govern how information is collected and shared and processed at the BRIC, that we ought to think about, you know, a kind of trust act approach, right? Maybe the approach isn't to say, well, the brick can't exist anymore. Maybe it's instead to say, at at first at least, well, the brick shouldn't be collecting and processing and sharing information about people unless those people are suspected of criminal activity. I think that's probably, you know, a, a pretty good starting place that a lot of people in Boston could get behind.
0: So certainly going to be something that we could potentially see play out in in the city council elections. the the funding's coming yeah um but but moving forward what that program looks like uh certainly is is going to be an issue and i know we've we're less than a month out maybe a month out from city council elections i know you've been speaking speaking with some candidates uh in some of the big races um have they touched on this issue and if not what what sort of issues are you hearing from from them
2: yeah i mean i haven't heard about this specific issue i always learn something when sue o'connell starts (laughs) talking
0: she knows all these things,
2: Um, they're really concerned about a wide range of things. I mean, you know, I think Mass and cast brings a lot of people just to the table automatically and it's really every district. They're all concerned about it. Uh, They wanna try and do something about that. They also, I think an interesting question was just the dysfunction that we've seen on the city council and trying to temper that. And it was like most of them said they just want to be the adult in the room and start to have conversations again among colleagues so that progress can happen. And maybe that sort of rolls into what you're talking about, Sue, is if, if we can get a city council that can have conversations and actually be constructive, maybe things like this can move forward in a, a better picture for all of Boston. I don't know if, if, if you see it that way.
3: Yeah, I mean, the challenge that we have locally for crime um, is there's, there's two challenges I think. One is that things are underreported, um, and it's confusing why it's underreported. Uh, you would think the police and neighborhoods would want to report more so they can get more funding and get more addressed. We also have, you know, the other part of it would be. People are calling 911 less because of the impact of BLM and the uh, the uh, uh, violence that some police have put on people. So a lot of people are just not calling 911 for small things. And the difficulty
0: of dealing with those 911 calls that are based around mental health issues.
3: Right, right. So you've got those as as well, and we have still have a large number of unsolved shootings in the city. Um, I don't know if brick is something that would help by sharing. Uh, data and information from those shootings that would help because it's not just Boston. Like people don't live in Boston and just shoot Boston people. We all know that. It's a whole regional issue. So um, those are, I think are the issues that uh, are the day-to-day crime issues that we we experience here in the city. We focus a lot on mass and cast as we should and the dangerous situation that is there but that's also in this area uh, with Uh, problems that are hard to solve but are still getting a lot of attention but throughout the neighborhoods we still have other problems
0: Well, We're going to have to leave it there for this week. We appreciate you taking the time to join us here on Taking Issue. Of course you can also join us this Sunday morning on At Issue at 1130 on NBC10 Boston right after Meet the Press. For Matt Pritchard Sue O'Connell, I'm Corey Smith Enjoy your day. We'll see you next time